Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 37 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. In this season, we've been looking at the ways that our cultural viewpoints, spiritual traditions, and personal experiences impact our view of the Bible. In today's episode, Dr. John Golden Gay shares with us his approach to studying scripture and ways that he prepares to write biblical commentaries. He encourages us to study our Bible with both an analytical and spiritual mind, and to come to the Bible humbly with our questions. He also shares tremendous wisdom on how to deal with passages in the Old Testament that perhaps don't make sense to us at first, and how to better explore and question those difficult texts. He also talks to us about the book of Joshua and ways to better understand the Battle of Jericho. And at the end of the episode, he shares a scripture reading plan to help us thoughtfully read through the entire Bible, three chapters at a time. Dr. John Golengay studied theology at Oxford. He earned his PhD from the University of Nottingham and a Doctor of Divinity from the Archbishop of Canterbury at Lambeth. He is Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he was previously Principal and Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at St. John's Theological College in Nottingham, England. Here's our conversation. So I wanted to ask you about um, just your love of the Old Testament and when that started for you and what was it about the Old Testament that just made you so passionate to want to study it? Well, I could tell you that, but it, it, in a sense, it's the wrong question or it won't, it won't deal with the If I tell you the answer to that question, it won't get at, what you're, at your, the question behind your question. Because the, the historic reasons why I got, well, we can go back to them in a minute if you like, but they're not the reasons why I'm excited about it now, why I got so excited and have stayed excited for 60 years. It's, um, it's, it's the fact that it's so um, real in the way it talks about God and us in our lives. Uh, and so that whatever are the issues that arise in our lives, uh, it doesn't then come at you with... Um, kind of um, devotional, rather standard pat answers and whatnot, but it tells you stories about people who are dealing with the same kind of issues uh, as, we'll do, as we deal with. Or, well, one of the things I've been doing lately is um, I was writing a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is brilliant for the way that it um, faces the real facts about how life is, that it's very easy for us as Christians to avoid. And it says, you can live with God for those questions. It doesn't matter whether you have the answers or not. You can live with God. God lives with you in relation to them. And that's why I continue to be excited and enthralled by it. Hmm. Is that the sort of, will that do? Or do, you, there, do you want the answer to the... That's totally. <laughs> that's a much better question. That's a much better question. In fact, revise all my questions. <laughs> I have a lot of dumb questions. That's a much better no, question. You're, you're, you're um, raising the question. Have, that was quite understandable. But it's just that I know that the what you're after... You wouldn't get if I answered the question literally. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. Um, and you've written so many commentaries. And I'm wondering, like, are there certain books that speak to you now um, that maybe didn't speak to you as much before? Um, I think it did. Each time. Let, let me give you another example. Uh, I say I've, I've been reading um, Ecclesiastes and I have loved Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes would have been. And that would be, in a way, an answer to that question. And it partly relates to the fact that um, my first wife, who died now 11 years ago, 
had multiple sclerosis and together we lived with that for 40 years and the realism with which Ecclesiastes faces issues in life um, had be, had meant a lot to me through that time when Anne was ill. Um, so uh, Ecclesiastes has always meant a lot to me um, for that sort of reason. But I'm now, what I'm doing this very moment, as it were, or was doing this afternoon before I started talking to you, is writing a commentary on Joshua. Now, I've never really got steam, you know, really particularly enthusiastic about Joshua, but I got asked to write a commentary on it. So I said, OK, then. In fact, it was it was kind of funnier than that, because it's a series in which the series is going to handle Joshua, Judges, Samuel Kings and so on. And I wanted to write Judges because I know I like Judges. And they said, no, you can't write Judges. We want to ask a woman to do that. You have to write just Joshua. So I said, oh, OK, then. But I'm, I'm just so excited about Joshua now. Uh, and, and what that illustrates, I think, is whatever is the part of the scriptures um, that I'm asked to kind of focus on, write something on, um, even if I'm not enthusiastic before I start, I get enthusiastic because the scriptures are all fantastic like that. So um, so you get this request like, hey, John, we'd like you to focus on on Joshua. Yeah. You're more attracted to yeah. judges, but you're like, OK, yeah, sounds like a great assignment. What? Like, how do you approach as a scholar, like as you begin to like look at Joshua, like what are some of the first things you're thinking about? Uh, I'm trying not to think about anything because what I want to do, I want to read the scriptural text and find out what it says. Uh, and I don't want to have my agenda or my questions as far as possible determined by what I am thinking about. And equally, I don't want my questions, my approaches to be determined by what the scholars have been thinking about. I want to try to get at the text's own agenda. So what I do is I sit at this same desk that I'm sitting at at the moment um, with uh, the Hebrew Bible and some dictionary, a dictionary and a translation. And I read, read this text and try to sort out what it's about, what it's got to say and think to myself, what's this about and what can I say that, that might be helpful to anybody on the questions that arise out of it? Then, by all means, um, I'll go and read other people's commentaries when I've kind of done my um, done my thinking for myself and I learn a lot more that way around. But I want to try to let the, the text itself set the agenda, not what I'm interested in, nor what the other scholars are interested in. Yeah, that's that's. Um, I love that approach. How do you... Like as you as you're reading, because you have you have the academic mind, you have the biblical scholarship mind. Um, as you're like reading through scripture, uh, how do you shift between kind of a spiritual reading versus an academic reading? Does it all kind of blend together for you? Uh, uh, I, th I think and hope it all blends together. Uh, I mean, I think I think it's it's very um, and and maybe that's easier for me the older I've got. Because I think that particularly when you're a student, you live with a split between the academic and the kind of devotional practical. Um, and, and, and that's the case because we are the heirs of a split between those two that goes back several hundred years now. There wasn't a split like that for Calvin. There wasn't a split like that for Augustine. But there, there is a split for, uh, like that in the context of modernity. Uh, that's just one of the things that we are the... Um, unfortunate beneficiaries of um, but I think that maybe 
uh, as I say, the older I've got, it becomes more easy to approach the text as the, the single human being you are, kind of mind and heart, and not having to split. Do, I mean, do you have do you have advice or or things that you did early earlier in your career as you were studying yeah. the scriptures to kind of see with both those lenses like you do now? Not really, apart from seeing that, that that's needed and and kind of having, a, I suppose, having a conviction and proving it that it's true, that when you're, that with most academic theological type questions, there is actually a kind of spiritual devotional payoff. And with most devotional spiritual kind of questions, uh, and thinking about it ac academically can feed into them. It, that, that when you've got that that conviction um, to set against the sort of pressure to separate them, then I think you've got more chance of doing it. So now that you're digging into to Joshua, like Joshua is a very, what a, what a beautiful book and so many great stories, um, but also some, obviously some very tragic things that are happening in the book. And I'm, I'm curious, like, as you read through the Old Testament, and let's talk about Joshua specifically, um, the story of Canaan, um, Jericho, um, these stories that are very difficult and scholars debate them and did this happen? And uh, how could God do that? Um, when you kind of are faced with these types of questions, um, how do you kind of, I guess, navigate those periods in scripture? Um, well, if you take, there are, there were two questions you just raised specifically, really. One is how true are they? How, how, how historical are they? And the other, is, the other is the moral kind of question. I suppose I've had both those questions going around my head for about 50 years. I mean, the question of scripture's historical um, nature, whether it matters that it's totally historical, whether it could be inspired, but also partly fictional. That was a question that was that when I first started being a graduate student, uh, that was the that was the question I wrote a paper on as a, as a very beginning graduate student. Uh, and so I spent quite a while trying to think those issues through and now I and and then after after not very long, maybe 20 years, I can't remember. But I thought, yeah, I know I can handle that now. I, I can see how um, it's important that scripture is basically factual. But it's also the case that, as we know from Jesus' parables, God likes stories as well as lacking history. Uh, and so if Joshua is a bit of a mixture of fact and parable, as I believe is the case, that's okay because God likes both of those because God could have inspired a mixture. Um, and and our problem, I mean, by our, I mean, our Christian and our scholarly problem is that for a long time, um, we we thought that those were alternatives or something. You felt if you were taking scripture seriously as, as the word of God, therefore it had to be exactly factual. And that was just an assumption we made, which I don't think there's any basis for. Or conversely, if you decided it wasn't factual, therefore it couldn't be the word of God, that was just false. So I think having thought that through that question through over a while, um, it doesn't trouble me now. Um, I yeah, the, the the question about the um, the the toughness of the st the stories and the the hardness of what God does and what Joshua does and whatnot. That was that was, I think, really why they wanted me to write the commentary, because <laughs> that was, the, you know, <laughs> they wanted me. Um, well, I, I've right. talked a, a bit about that before uh, to think about that. Um, the thing that has then become important to me um, in line with something I was saying just now 
uh, is that when when I'm coming at the now let me start somewhere else. I heard an, another autism yeah. professor giving a paper at a conference a few years ago, describing with more honesty than scholars usually show what were the theological and moral ethical presuppositions that he had when he came to read the Pentateuch he was talking about. And he, he gave a list of the things that were really important to us as modern people and said, it's in the light of our convictions as modern people that I evaluate the Bible. Now, people aren't usually as, as honest um, uh, in saying that. That's what's happening all the time. But people aren't usually as honest as that guy was on that occasion. And I want to be the opposite. I want to take the make the assumption that not not the assumption that as modern people we are obviously enlightened, which is what we think, but rather as modern people we've probably got some things that we need to learn. And so I'm not going to start by assuming that my modern assumptions are the ones in light of which I evaluate Scripture. I'm going to see if Scripture wants to confront my moral my moral convictions. One of the ways, and one of the people is neat about that. Oh, well, there are, there are there are two. When people uh, um, approach um, the Old Testament and, and look at what earlier generations of commentators do did with them, there are two things that they notice. One is that that commentators like Origen and um, particularly who wrote a, a, a fine commentary on um, on Joshua. Uh, Origen, Origen was um, a theologian in Alexandria in Egypt in the third century, I think it was. Um, they're inclined to allegorize the text. That is, they, they, they make it teach you spiritual lessons that are really nothing to do. So it's a bit like C.S. Lewis did it, actually, when he said, um, commentating on Psalm 137 about dashing babies on the rocks, he said, you know, the, the babies on the rocks we have to dash are the evil thoughts we have in our minds. That's allegorical interpretation. It's kind of okay if you don't mind it, but it, it doesn't get me, uh, doesn't kind of do things for me, because I think that that when, um, as, the as the beginning of Hebrews puts it, God was speaking to our ancestors through the prophets. He was speaking to them in ordinary language, and he wasn't talking allegorically, he was talking literally. So if God was speaking to our fathers, our ancestors, through the prophets, and saying these things in Joshua, I want to take that seriously. The other person who uh, is uh, struck me a lot in, in reading, um, particularly this kind of passage in Joshua, is Calvin. And the distinctive thing about mm. Calvin and some others is they know that God is God. Whereas in, in the context of modernity, we think we are God, and we certainly think we know how God thinks. Whereas Calvin doesn't assume that he knows how God thinks. He assumes that Joshua knew how God thought. And Calvin points out, no, this is this is coming to be. Yeah, well, what Calvin's point is, God is sovereign. God, God knows what he's doing. If God says outrageous things, okay, that's God's business. I'm going to accept them. And that's part, one of the things I want to do. The other thing is, um, I read a very, a very coincidentally, a, a very interesting book about um, war and issues to do with that uh, and and religion, religion and war. In which the guy, I don't think was particularly was a particularly Christian book, was saying that it used to be the case that people assumed um, that the God, that, that God and war, that you had to bring God and war together, that God decided about when to fight wars and whatnot. And then again, in the context of modernity, we took God, uh, we took the secular 
we separated faith and the secular, theology and the secular. So who is the God who now decides when to make war? And so we are. The state decides. We decide what's... We're involved in it now with Afghanistan and Iran and Israel and whatnot. We, just, we are God and we decide what to do. Um, and uh, in Joshua, um, God decides what to do. And, and I may not always know, um, be able to see why God makes that decision. But I'm going to accept that God does. And then I think a thing a thing that I, I noticed myself um, in reading Joshua more and more is that it never says the Canaanites are wicked. Now, loads of books say mm. Joshua um, jo Joshua says that the Canaanites get punished because they're wicked. It doesn't say that at all. It's 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 God exercising His sovereignty, uh, and He's God. And as Paul says in Romans nine to eleven, He's God. He exercises His sovereignty. So shut up. Well, Paul doesn't quite put it like that, but he does more or less. Um, and and so Calvin and Paul invite us to invite to approach Joshua, accepting that God makes decisions about things. And if I don't understand the why and the justice and whatnot, what I know about God means that I know it must be okay. Yeah, no, that's 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 uh that's super helpful because I I guess like like that story is is curious and and hard sometimes because like. You see in that instance God uh declaring that you know Joshua Israel, Israelites need to go and invade and destroy everyone in, in Canaan. That's, that's Whereas in, you look that's at the not story really in Joshua, that's in Deuteronomy. Oh it's oh I'm sorry, that's yeah. Deuteronomy. That's what people I, say. Lines. But when you read Deuteronomy, when you read Joshua, there's very little of that. And there's hardly any it's, it talks a lot about extermination and ethnic cleansing, but if you look for how many times they did that, it's hardly ever. And here's here's where it ties in with the with the historical question. The two places that it makes most fuss about are Jericho and Ai, right? Now at Jericho, the, Jericho, they don't fight at all because they just blow the trumpets and God blows the walls down. Uh, 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 but both at Jericho and at Ai, archaeological investigations indicate that nobody lived in either place at the time. Mm. <laughs> Well, interesting. It's interesting. interesting now. These two questions about history and about right and wrong turn yeah. out to be much very different from what you thought, and they kind of interweave with each other. And so, um, so the two places that Joshua, where Joshua is supposed to have killed anybody, there was nobody there to kill. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, and the book of Joshua later on keeps saying, "Well, actually, the Israelites didn't kill all those people." So, so the whole the the, the book. That what the book actually says is very different from what people in their heads think that it said. Oh, that's that's it's very, it's very, very fascinating. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something else I discovered um, today. Here's today's discovery. People, one of the things that people say when they're criticizing Joshua and whatnot is that that was just the justification that um, uh, English settlers used when they went in the Americas and they killed off mm. Native Americans. And the guy, a piece I was reading today by a great guy called Daniel Hawke, who teaches at Ashland Seminary, who's the best person on Joshua, um, says, actually, if you look, that those guys, those settlers, they never refer to Joshua. It's right that they did do the kind of thing that people say that Joshua did, but I'm saying actually didn't do. But they never talk, they never quote Joshua. They quote Exodus. And, that, and that's because, of course, they felt, they're claiming that they were driven out from from England by the rotten English, 
um, and that they were like the Israelites leaving Egypt. Uh, they were involved in an exodus, but they never used Joshua as an excuse for whether they treat for the way they treated Native Americans. Now that's another. That's a, well, there's so many myths um, about scripture generally and about Joshua in particular around that it's um, uh, interesting, frustrating, annoying, um, fun to discover that uh, these myths. Like I mean, you're addressing all of these myths. What, what? Why is it that we create these? myths? Oh well, I'll tell you what. Well, I think I think two reasons. For, two reasons in connection with what I was just saying. Most scholars want to be critical of the scriptures. Uh, and that's a way of being critical. We want to be, again, it's, have you heard of post-colonial interpretation? Okay. No. Well, it's a really quite interesting thing. Post-colonial studies in general, uh, it's something that comes out of the fact that so much of the world was under empires like mine uh, and then was free. Uh, and, and now we're seeking to do its own thinking. And and when um, when people read um, the Old Testament scriptures, they perceive correctly sometimes that whereas we British and Americans identify with Israel, we, are, we, we the people we ought to identify with are the Assyrians and the Babylonians because we were the empire. Israel is the colony, mm. is the underdog. Um, and uh, but post-colonial interpretation then in the hands of scholars often is a means of being imperialistic in relation to scripture, criticizing, uh, and so that's one of the that's one of the sources of the myths is is our in a very broad sense of our desire to critique scripture, um, and and another I think the other one I was thinking of is that we know that we've been involved and we by we now in a way to a very very extent I mean you, i.e. Americans. <laughs> That we've been involved in yeah. so many wars, um, Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on, Vietnam, obviously, most of all. Uh, and we have a really bad conscience about that. And so for us to critique Joshua is a way of getting out of the sense of guilt that we've got. That's dead on. And I think that that's my problem. I think sometimes my problem is that when I come to scripture, um, especially when I'm thinking about it uh, critically, is that sometimes my 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 problem is like I'm like almost ready to I'm just looking for a reason to get upset <laughs> with scripture. Even and I'm yeah, a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm Dr. I'm a, yeah. I'm a Christian and I'm like, but like when I try to look a little critically, I'm almost like I'm looking for what am I gonna now yeah. discover? Yeah, yeah. That's my own sin. Whereas uh, again, alongside that two two um verses really just at the back end of the New Testament. Uh, have I've been thinking about quite a bit lately in this connection. One of them is that one I just quoted about God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets. So whatever what you find God saying to the ancestors, the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, is that that's uh, that's what God was saying. So we have to listen to it. But the other one is the probably is the more better known or more often quoted one in 2 Timothy about all Scripture being uh, inspired by God and profitable for correction and training in righteousness and all those things. And often when Christians think about that verse, they think about it with regard to the New Testament or maybe the Bible as a whole. And they don't take account of the fact that what Paul is talking about is the Old Testament, because obviously he hasn't finished writing the New Testament yet. So Paul is saying, <laughs> right. you, know all, you know Joshua? Joshua is, is God's theopanoustos, God-inspired God word that's profitable for you with regard to faith in Christ Jesus, correction, training in righteousness and whatnot. 
And if you're not quite sure whether, whether you would mean that about um, Joshua, then go back to Hebrews again. And Joshua is one of the Hebrews of faith in Hebrews, one of the heroes of faith in, he, in Hebrews 11. Joshua was the guy who the saintly Stephen about to be uh, stoned talks about how terrific it was that God, um, that, that Joshua uh, led the Israelites invading the country. So the, it, it all shows that there's something askew uh, with a lot of the ways in which the, the framework of thinking that we bring to Joshua and other parts of the Old Testament in not seeing that, that not least that the New Testament recognises it as theopneustos and profitable for with regard to faith in Christ Jesus. When when people come to you and ask you, like, I want to start to, you know, read read the Old Testament and go through it more seriously, um, what would be some books you'd say to start with? Do you, do you have, like, recommendations on, like, here's, here's a good path on how to read the Old Testament? Uh, read three chapters a day. Uh, I'm, more, I'm more broad minded than your question, because my three chapters are start at Genesis, Psalms and Matthew. So today you read Genesis 1, Psalm 1 and Matthew 1. Tomorrow you read Genesis 2, Psalm 2, Matthew 2 and so on. Uh, and then you'll more or less get through in a year. Uh, and you'll find that um, you will learn possibly every day. You won't get much out of two of those, but you'll get something out of one of them. And you can't ask for more than that, mm. I'd say, really. Um, and, and sometimes mm. you'll find that they feed into each other, um, but that you will get through the entirety of the scriptures that way. And then the next year, you can do the same again. <laughs> and you'll find that it speaks to you in different ways. And I know we're up at our time. Um, and you've written uh, a ton of fantastic commentaries. When someone is, is, is going to buy a commentary, do you think that someone should like get a, a commentary set? Or is it better to go after like a book that is by a certain Don't person. buy a set unless they accept my set. Because <laughs> 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 the sets, uh, I wrote a, a set, a collection of little ones called the Old Testament for Everyone that um, Westminster John Knox published, and they cover the whole Old Testament. Um, but, um, but generally speaking, sets that are by different, lots of different people are very uneven. So no, don't buy a set. Well, Dr. Golden Gate, I want to thank you so much for your time sharing your passion for the Old Testament with me. And um, for those that want to uh, learn more about you and your work and your blog, what's the best place well, for them? Uh, JohnGoldenGate.com. Thank All you right. so much, John. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation about ways to better study and love our Old Testament with Dr. John Golden Gay. I walked away from this conversation encouraged and inspired to dig into and explore the Old Testament with more humility and curiosity. If you'd like to share ways Dr. Golden Gate has inspired you, let me know by messaging me on social. You can find Delgado Podcasts on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. And you can also find summaries of past episodes on my blog at mikedelgado.org. Next week, we're chatting with Dr. Jennifer Woodruff-Tate about historic Christian creeds and how doctrines developed, which is the subject of her latest book entitled Christian History in Seven Sentences, which is published by InterVarsity Press. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time.